Welcome to the Walking Lessons Podcast. In today's lesson, Nate talks about the third step, our decision to turn our will and our life over to the care of God as we understand Him. And now, here's Nate Larkin. Last week, we talked about, uh, actually we spent two weeks talking about acquiring a more realistic self-concept, getting right-sized, finding our place within the created order so that we're no longer uh, harboring these grandiose ambitions to be like God and no longer condemning ourselves, running into shame whenever we fail to be perfect, but not hating ourselves in the process. I remember a sponsor early on saying to me, he says, Nate, you've been taking care of your addiction, you've been taking care of business, you've been doing your best to take care of your family, you've not been taking care of yourself. I want to introduce you to self-care. And we, so we talked about that very specifically last week. One thing that I did not mention last week that uh, I remembered as I left, you know, they always say there's, there's three messages. There's the one you prepare, the one you give, and the one you give on the way home. So on the way home, I thought, shoot, I didn't say a word about therapy. I'm grateful for the uh, large number of caring and competent counselors that God has gifted this community with. And uh, I have found that for me in recovery, it has been very, very helpful for me to avail myself of their assistance and not rely solely on my 12-step groups. It's a good cocktail for me to kind of do both. And in fact, I think I was five years in when I gave myself the best gift I've ever given myself. I gave myself a week at Onsite. If you, I don't know if you've heard of Onsite, but it's a, a, a treatment center here in Middle Tennessee out in the little hamlet of Cumberland Furnace west of Nashville. What a tremendous week that was for me. I think I accomplished as much in a week as I would have accomplished in a year or more just going to meetings on a weekly basis. Not everybody has the luxury of going for an extended treatment, but if you can do it, my counsel is to go. That's part of self-care. But it's a humbling thing to do, to say, I really need help running my own life. So I've referenced the, the first three of the 12 steps as we've gone along. That first one, that begins with that terrifying admission. We admitted that we were powerless over something and that our lives had become unmanageable. That's an admission we did not want to make. And so for years we had, uh, those of us who are addicts, had employed a whole arsenal of denial strategies to shield us from that unpleasant reality that our life was a, was a shambles and that we were hurting those around us. And we were settling for a little less every day as life got smaller and smaller instead of bigger and bigger. But we admitted that we were powerless in step one. Step two of the 12 steps goes like this. It came to believe that a power greater than ourselves could restore us to sanity. And that's, uh, that is a, a progressive step. Came to believe. You'll hear the alcoholics sometimes say that it happened for them like this. First they came. And then they came too. And then, after a while, they came to believe. I used to uh, regularly haunt an AA meeting here in town. Although I'm not an alcoholic, so I've never spoken in a meeting, I don't qualify for membership. The only requirement for membership in AA is a desire to stop drinking, which is a desire I don't have. So I can't be a member. Uh, 
okay? Okay. But I, uh, I love to listen to drunks talk sense to each other. I really do. And when an alcoholic says, one drink is too many and a thousand is not enough, I know exactly what he's talking about. Because while I can stop at two or three easily uh, with drinks, and I hate being drunk, there are other behaviors. My sexual behaviors just continued to spiral. Crossed every line I swore I wouldn't cross, just about. So, but I remember I like to go and I sit against the wall and I just listen to people talk and it, it feels like a very sacred place to me. I meet God there. And this is a dilemma that Christians encounter when they get into recovery. They really do. It becomes a problem because what's down there is so real that it can be tough in even a setting like this. Yeah, at any rate. So there was one guy who, uh, who used to share from time to time and this guy just drove me crazy. He was I don't know how long he'd been in recovery, but he was new to the area, and you could tell he'd come from the Northeast, okay? And, and he just kind of had this, he was loud, and he had this, he occasionally had some good things to say. But in, in that meeting, he got a respectful hearing as, yeah. you know, when he got done, everybody said, thanks. It's a large group, and in that meeting, you're limited to a three-minute share. So when you get close to it, somebody holds up a yellow stop sign. And then when you hit three minutes, they flip it, and then it's time for you to close. That's how it, they try to get as many shares as they can. And uh, I will never forget uh, sitting in a Monday meeting, and uh, this guy raised his hand to share, and he says, I just want everybody to know that I met my higher power yesterday. His name is Jesus. And from that point on, he was a different guy. He found himself in church only because he'd gone to that room first. The 12-step rooms have become a side entrance into the church for a great many people who would never go to church either because they were so deeply wounded during a religious upbringing or by Christian people or um, you know, they've developed this hardened and cynical uh, agnosticism, or these days, it's quite fashionable to be an atheist. It's ironic to me that 12-step these days takes fire from both directions. From Christians, they're criticized for being um, too secular. And among the seculars, they're criticized for being too religious. Meanwhile, what they're really trying to do is uh, have an authentic relationship with God and with each other, right? Looking for spiritual reality. So, came to believe that a power greater than ourselves could restore us to sanity. Implicit in that step is an admission that I'm insane. Once again, I have to face just how crazy my life has become. In my own mind, I've normalized it. You know, every kid grows up in a normal house because he doesn't know it's crazy. It's his, only, it's a, his or her only uh, frame of reference. It could only be later in childhood to begin to see, you know, that was kind of nuts. But as we're kids, that's normal. And as adults, we tend to normalize our relationships, normalize our work relationships, and they can get seriously skewed without our noticing it. We need to get in a, a company of uh, clear-eyed people with whom we can be honest, be completely safe. 
for that insanity to reveal itself. So that's part of step two. Now step three is the first decision step. And I, as I think I've told you, I thought that because I came into 12-step as a Christian, believed in God all my life, uh, have a master's degree in God, you know, a teacher, a preacher, that I, got, that I would certainly get a pass on step two and step three. Right? I could just, I would have to work on step one and then we'd just get started on step four because I grandfathered in on the God stuff. I'll tell you what, this is, gonna, this is a very, very uncomfortable part of the process, at least for me, because it challenged almost everything that I believed about God or said I believed about God. So the step goes like this, made a decision, this is the first decision step. <coughs> You know, I haven't even made a decision up till now. Made a decision to turn our will and our lives over to the care of God as we understood Him. There's that qualifying phrase that drives Christians crazy. And I, you know, and myself, you know, as a young preacher, I mean, I didn't know any better. I was parroting what I'd heard my father say and others say. Look, God is not a make-your-own-Sunday proposition. God is who God is. You don't pray to God as you understand him. Find out who he is. That's who, you know. As though we can surrender to God any other way than to the God as we understand. We're always limited by our understanding. Are we not? And I'd spend an awful lot of time trying to refine my own understanding of God and, and correct everybody else's understanding of God, thinking that it was in that understanding that I would find my freedom. Well, yes, I mean, I, I have to get honest with how I understand God and beg God to reveal himself more clearly to me. But really, the hard part of this step is what comes before that thing, which says, we made a decision to turn our will and our lives over to the care of God. I'd grown up in the church, and I'd grown up doing my very best to be a good Christian and a good person and to... And to, uh, and to continuously improve, and to perform, and to do all the follow the instructions. But I had never turned myself over completely or for very long to the care of God. I want to give you a little bit of history out of it. This is probably a rabbit trail, but I've, we've run into, I've taken you on a couple historical trips so far in this class. Uh, <laughs> Here's another one. Here's a little bit of a history of the 12-step movement, which, which to me just shows the beauty of what God does. I think it's one of the greatest ironies that 12-step recovery came out of the holiness movement, but it did. So the holiness movement uh, in, American, uh, in Protestantism began here in America in the 1820s with Charles Finney, and there was a, a real commitment in those days to a life of holiness, a belief, a fervent belief in Christian perfection. It was developed as a doctrine so that, in a, so yes, you were converted in the first experience you had with Christ, but you could have a second experience which would confer upon you an ability to resist sin, overcome sin, and live a sinless life. And when Pentecostalism came along, uh, outpouring the gift of tongues, that was associated with, uh, Finney, Finney called uh, actually Wesley's doctrine of Christian perfection, actually began with Wesley earlier, he called it the baptism of the Holy Spirit. 
And it's interesting, when Finney talks about his conversion experience, he talks about this, this a great light and a sense of warmth. And it echoes what Wesley described when he had his conversion experience in the Aldersgate Chapel, when his heart was strangely warmed. So in 1850, the holiness movement, which was moving, by the way, strongly through Middle Tennessee, one of the biggest holiness churches in the country was right here in Franklin, 3,000 members. It made its way to Britain. There was a, quite a holiness movement in Britain. And out of that movement in 1850, some people got together. And this was a trans-denominational movement, although it really got traction within Anglican circles. There was a convention called in the town of Keswick, England. And so they came together, and they prayed for a week. And there was some teaching. It was a phenomenal experience. And so what happened after that was the Keswick Convention became an annual thing. And over the years, some of the greatest you know, preachers uh, 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 on the planet were there. Moody was there with Ira Sankey. R.A. Torrey was there. Hudson Taylor was there. Amy Carmichael was in the audience and heard him speak, made a decision to commit her life to missions at Keswick. Well, it was at Keswick in 1908 that a young um, American missionary, a Lutheran kid named Frank Buckman, had a conversion experience. You know, he was a kid, you know, raised in the church, all that kind of thing, and uh, and it just revolutionized him. Now he was a gifted speaker and a, really had a knack for public relations and publicity as well. He was a campus pastor, so he started uh, sharing with uh, with college kids. Uh, he wound up in 1921. He star started a group called First Century Christian Fellowship. And the idea was this, strongly influenced by the holiness movement. He said, let's go back to first century Christianity. Before there were churches and, and clergy and all the stuff that church is doing. And let's just concentrate on the things that Jesus taught us to do. From somebody within uh, Keswick circles, he distilled what he called the four absolutes. These are the things that we need to, to focus on, Frank Buckman said. We need to strive for perfect purity, perfect honesty or transparency, perfect love, and perfect unselfishness. Now, you can hear the perfection language there, right? It's all, it's absolute. We're going to stride. These are the absolutes. These are what we want to do. But everything else uh, is, is set aside. And he said, you know what? We're not going to have any buildings. We're not even going to incorporate. There's going to be no clergy. Um, he attracted very high energy followers. And they had, and they met, he said, the first century church met daily from house to house. That's what we ought to be doing. So they started meeting in homes. He said, uh, they confessed their sins to each other. That's what we need to be doing. None of us should have any hidden sin. This needs to be a safe place enough that you can just share your sin and your temptation with other people. You should do it on a daily basis. And they started doing that. He said, it's important. Jesus uh, seemed to make a point about restitution. We need to make amends, restitution for anybody we've harmed directly or indirectly. We need to get serious about that, even go to great lengths to do it. And also, a big belief in seeking and following the direction of the Holy Spirit. We should spend time in prayer together seeking direction. If we ask God what to do, he'll tell us, and then we should go do it. I, I think I'd have been in the Okay, 
this this movement began really began to gather speed, and it and it was very influential in the 30s in that period before the Second World War. Things are very tense in Europe. Buckman is traveling Europe. He's invited to address Parliament in Norway. He's, uh, there are huge movements through Norway and Denmark. In one week at Oxford, uh, 5,000 people over the course of the week came to meetings there. They had over 1,100 members of First Century Christian Fellowship at Oxford University. Uh, Buckman also traveled to China and uh, around the world, and he would send out his folks. It just spread this simple call. And in fact, it was in 1929 that a bunch of these people, Buckman's people, were in South Africa together. They were all from Oxford University. And uh, a porter, trying to describe who they were, said, yeah, it's that Oxford group. And they got their name there. They were no longer known as the First Century Christian Fellowship. They were known as the Oxford group. Now. There is another young American guy, this is an Episcopal guy, who's trained for the Episcopal ministry, who crosses paths with Buckman when Buckman's in the US, gets permission to travel with him to China. And he does, his, his, his life is very deeply impacted by his experience with Frank Buckman. While he's over there, he, he receives a call, a little church in New York, it, it was thriving at one time, but now it's, it's on the verge of extinction. They call and they ask this young guy to come and be their pastor. His name is Sam Shoemaker. Well, Sam goes to New York, and uh, he starts an Oxford group at his church. And uh, he also is influential in starting one in Akron, Ohio, where it's hosted by an heiress to the Firestone fortune. So there are daily meetings in her mansion in Akron. <coughs> Okay, so living in New York at this time is agnostic or atheistic stockbroker named Bill Wilson. And Bill, you know, as a young man, he's just flamed out. You, you probably know some of his story, but he's, uh, he's been devastated by uh, the stock market crash. He's had multiple business failures. He's been to Towns Hospital, which is a place you go, drunks go to dry out. There's really no hope for treatment or anything, but you go to dry out. He's been there a couple times. His long-suffering wife is, I mean, she's about at the end of her rope. She's at work one day because she's supporting the, uh, the two of them. He can't work. He's, got, he's managed to get some whiskey in the house, and there's a knock on the door. And it's an old buddy, an old drinking pal of his, a guy named Ebby Thatcher. And Ebby is just glowing. And uh, Bill's thrilled because he's, he's got somebody to have a drink with. And Ebby says, no, no, not for me, thanks. Bill says, what? What's... What happened? Ivy says, well, I got religion. Oh, Bill's just devastated. You know, this is the ruination of a good friendship. But Ebby just, he's just bubbling over, and he, he talks about this group and how, you know, he went and he, he talked to these people and he confessed everything, and then, you know, and he made amends, and, and the desire for alcohol has been taken away. Well, he finally, uh, a couple weeks later, I think, Think. I'm not quite sure of the timeline. He convinces Bill to go to a meeting. And the meeting is held at Sam Shoemaker's church, Calvary Episcopal Church in Manhattan. Bill's drunk when he goes. But he still is impacted. Comes out, makes the decision that he'll go back to Towns Hospital one more time. He drinks four beers on his way there. By the way, I always have to warn guys going into treatment, you know. 
Beware of the binge before you go. It's almost a universal. It's like the picking out the day before the diet starts. Yeah. So Bill did that. He had four beers, which would be the last alcohol he ever drank. He went in. Withdrawal was tough. But late one night, he had this experience where the room filled with light. And he felt this peace he'd never felt. And God had showed up. Well, Bill became a regular attender of the Oxford group meetings and a fast friend of Sam Shoemaker, who introduced him to the Christian faith. Bill didn't know nothing from the Christian faith. And he spent his time volunteering at Towns Hospital, working with other alcoholics. Six months passed, and uh, nobody had gotten sober. Bill shared with Lois one night how discouraged he was that nobody had gotten sober. And she said, yeah, but you stayed sober. I wonder if that has anything to do with the fact you're trying to help other people. Uh, he has to leave then on a business trip, which by chance takes him to Akron. He gets there, he checks into the hotel, and he goes down to the lobby and he hears the sound of tinkling ice and glass and laughter coming from the hotel bar. And suddenly he's just seized with an almost overpowering urge just to go in and just have a drink. He's in the lobby, so there's the entrance to the bar, and there is a bank of telephones, pay phones. Well, before he'd left town, Sam Shoemaker had given him a phone number of Oxford Group contact in Akron. So he went to the phone, and he called the number, and he said, do you know of any alcoholic I can help? I need to help an alcoholic. I'm Sam Shoemaker's friend. I'm from New York, whatever. And the woman said, yeah, so one of our members, uh, her husband's a surgeon, if you want to call him a surgeon. I mean, he's very far gone, and we've done everything we can, and he's pretty much toast. And Bill said, well, you know, can I talk to him? So they arranged for him to meet Bob Smith, Dr. Bob Smith. And um, they wind up talking through the night. Bill decides to stay in Akron and help Bob. He stayed for a month just to help Bob. And um, 30 days in, Bob had his last drink. And that was in 1935. Dr. Bob went on. Now, Dr. Bob had grown up in church. He was a very committed Christian. He had a very well-worn Bible. He insisted, if you were going to do this third step prayer, which I'll read for you in a little bit, if you got to the third step, you went to Bob, Dr. Bob's office and you knelt with him on the floor. If you didn't kneel, it didn't count, right? <laughs> Bible open, and you pray the prayer. Uh, he went on to uh, introduce, it's estimated, uh, 5,000 people. Help 5,000 people get out of slavery to alcohol and into a new way of life. Now, back in New York, interestingly, there was a bunch of alcoholics that were coming to the Oxford Group meetings now. And the Oxford Group was still carrying the DNA of the holiness movement. And in it, this commitment to absolute purity, this sinlessness thing, this Christian perfection thing. And um, the alcoholics had concluded that they couldn't promise that they would never drink again, that it, that wasn't incumbent upon them to do it, <laughs> that they didn't have the power in and of themselves not to drink again, that they were always going to be alcoholics, that there was a transformation, but not that transformation that they wanted. It, it had come a different way. Well, that started to stick in the craw of some of the more orthodox holiness folks. 
And in fact, one very uncomfortable evening, an associate pastor from Calvary Church called out what he called a subgroup of people not sufficiently committed to holiness. And that was when the alcoholics knew they were going to have to leave the Oxford group. But they left with an awful lot of good stuff. Their meetings continued to be very, very Christian for quite a while. And still, most 12-step meetings end with the, uh, uh, with the Lord's Prayer. There is God language. In the early days, the meeting would open with a reading from um, the upper room devotional. What happened eventually was they started attracting people who hadn't been in church or having a real hard time with God. And here's what Bill also began to notice. He began to notice that whenever the church fractured, it was Christians arguing over doctrine. And he said, sobriety depends on unity. We're, we have to stick together or we're going to drown. What they decided to do was, you know, Christians are welcome, but we're going to adopt very general language. We're going to talk about a higher power because we cannot wind up having a religious war. We'll blow the place up. That's how it's got to be. And then they also, very wisely, I, I like it, at one point Bill Wilson said, we owe a great debt to the Oxford Society for showing us what to do, and equally importantly, showing us what not to do. Some of the things that they didn't do was they said, okay, well, you know what, we're not going to have positions, because people tend to fight over power. So there are no, there's no director of AA. In fact, AA is not a corporate entity. It's, it's led by people who are called trusted servants elected by their peers for short terms of service determined by the group for the job that the group determines. And um, they don't own any property. So there's no property to fight over. Isn't that great? Also, no mortgages. It's beautiful. It's non-professional. So they do pass the basket to meet their needs. But I made the mistake my first time in was, I mean, I was so happy to be there. I put a $10 in the plate, and I gave it back. Now, back then, it was limited to a dollar. It's been raised to two bucks now, but you can't give more than two bucks. There is a general service board in New York that organizes conferences and arranges for the printing of literature, and they will accept donations, but they limit them to $3,000. So all as a way to just kind of preserve unity. Okay, so here I come up to the third step, and I think I took the third step when I was three, you know. And my sponsor is telling me, I've, I have to turn my will and my life over to the care of God. He said, you know, it's obvious that you have not trusted God. You have you trusted yourself to meet your needs. You trusted your addiction to meet your emotional needs rather than God to take care of them. Interestingly, Patrick Carnes, in his first book, Out of the Shadows, from his studies, his clinical studies of sex addicts, the characteristics of a sex addict, the one, I can't remember them all right now, but the one that stuck out to me was this. He said, sex addicts believe that if they don't take care of their own needs, no one else will. You know, just can't trust anybody. Can't trust anybody. And now I'm being in the third step called upon to actually trust God. I, I went on a rant once with my sponsor against these, you know, these 12-step people who looked at me funny when I mentioned the name of Jesus. You know, I was trying to, you know, Christianize the group. I was really working hard. I just felt if I had to be there, I had to be a witness or a missionary or whatever I had to do, right? And that's common, too, uh, very common. And, you know, I had to footnote everything with a Bible verse and, you know, all of that. And, and, and I remember him looking at me, he says, Nate, do you want to know the difference between 
you and them, the main difference? He said, you both believe in God. They trust him. Can I trust that if I say I cannot control this behavior and never will be able to, and if I just put that out there and just give it to God, I give him the whole thing, can I trust that, first of all, I will be embraced and not rejected, and that he will do for me what I cannot do for myself and keep me away from that destructive behavior? That's a scary step. It reminded me a lot of learning to swim, frankly. So I may have told some of you this. My father never was not a swimmer, uh, so he never took a swimming. We lived, ironically, on the shores of Lake Ontario, one block from the water, and we never went in the water. We didn't, we didn't swim. And so it was awkward for me at summer camp, especially as I got older and the other, guy, the other kids are diving off the dock and swimming to the float, and I'm out in the shallow part. But eventually, I just stopped going in the water and pretended I had something more important to do. Uh, but I would try to swim. And uh, I could never do it, and I was terrified of the water. Well, then I met Allie. Allie is a senior lifesaver. She's a, she's a fish. She loves the water. She bought me a Speedo swimming suit. Uh, <laughs> yeah. For our honeymoon, yeah. And... Uh, and I can't swim. I can dive off the side of a pool and, and skim underwater to the other side and grab the other side. That's all I can do. Well, for our second anniversary, I guess it must have been, second anniversary, we were at Princeton, and we're at married uh, in the marriage student housing, which has a pool in the summertime. On our anniversary, May 21st, Allie has this big smile on her face. She says, I got you something, you know. She got me swimming lessons at the pool. Great. So we go to the pool, and um, the instructor is a friend of mine. Roger explains to me what we're going to do. He says, first thing, we're going to float. You're going to float on your back. And I said, I'm sorry. I've tried that. I don't float. Let me back up and tell you why I was afraid of water. When I was eight years old, my favorite cousin, who I idolized, who was in the Coast Guard Academy, he was an athlete, he was a competitive swimmer, drowned to death. He, he died one night in the barge canal where his father worked as a lock operator. He was drunk and partying with his friends and apparently became disoriented and began to struggle and went under and drowned. If you lose confidence that the water will hold you up and you try to do that part, you will drown. So Roger says, he explains it to me. He says, okay, well, I will hold you first. Put your head back. Put your head back. Relax. Breathe deep. Miracle of miracles. I float. The water does hold me up. I'm not a strong swimmer yet, but here's what I've learned about swimming. Swimming is about 50% rest. If you, if you want to be a competitive swimmer, then you, you need to expend no energy in staying afloat and as much energy as possible in propulsion. You trust the water to keep you up. You just do the work to go forward. That really is what this is about. 
I was drowning because I was trying to stay afloat. What I was being invited to do was trust that if I would just surrender to God, I would float. He would keep me. I wouldn't drown. It might get scary. Don't panic. And then we'll do some work to make some forward progress. Here's the third step prayer, which everybody reads. I was with a friend of mine. The other, he wouldn't mind me telling you his name, but I won't. Anyway, but he's a Christian comic, been sober 25 years from alcohol. And he said that when he first started praying this prayer, he didn't even believe in God. But they told him he had to pray the prayer if he wanted to get sober. He came to faith through sobriety. And it's a very, very simple prayer. And you can hear the, uh, the language of the King James in it. It's all these and thous. You can hear the church stuff. Here's the prayer. God, I offer myself to thee to do with me as thou wilt. Relieve me of my bondage to self that I may better do thy will. Take away my difficulties that victory over them may bear witness to those I would help of thy power, thy love, and thy way of life. May I do thy will always. Amen. Uh, you know, we, we talked about self-care last week. It's crucial. We have to learn to take care of ourselves. The danger is always that trap of uh, self-centeredness. Freedom comes as we surrender ourselves as an instrument of his grace to help other people. One last story. It's not a personal story, uh, but to me it's germane. I think we get pushed to surrender. April 1945. Japan has already surrendered. Germany has not surrendered, but the war is over. The war is over, but Hitler won't surrender. It was over, really, uh, the day of the D-Day invasion. It's just working its way out. The Red Army and the Russians have lost at least 10 million men, and they're angry. They're advancing on Berlin from the east. The Allies are advancing from the west, and the Russians get there first. It's an amazing thing what happened then. What happened then was the German soldiers, they looked at the Russians, and they knew what they would get if they ever if they surrendered. If the Russians got them, they knew what they would get. What they did was they started throwing down their arms and running west as fast as they could to surrender to the Americans. They knew the war was over. They knew surrender was inevitable. It was only a matter of what were they going to surrender to? As an addict, you know, the war was over for me for years. I just was crazy enough not to know it. I was defeated every day. I surrendered every day to that urge that was bent on destroying me. And yet, I resisted surrendering in the opposite direction as though I still was some kind of a going entity. Surrender is inevitable. Every knee shall bow and every tongue shall confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Right. Humility is inevitable. Humiliation is optional. And we are wise when we choose to surrender to that loving power. We still have to give up our, our autonomy, but it was an illusion anyway. We really don't have anything to bargain with. And he wants only to restore us. Let's close in a word of prayer.
Lord, thank you so much for our time together. Lord, I do pray that you would help us to move scary close, uh, to become vulnerable with one another. Help us uh, to trust and to be trustworthy. I pray, God, for here and throughout the rest of the church, Father, a, a quantum leap forward in connection. Pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for joining us on this episode of the Walking Lessons Podcast. We want to hear from you. Please email your comment or question about today's lesson to walkinglessons at gmail.com or join the Walking Lessons page on Facebook. We'll see you next week.